0: Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads – This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by The Nocturnal Reader's Box at TheNocturnalReadersBox.com. And be listening at the end of this episode as I give you a very special deal that they are offering only to weirdo family members. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? When I was in my 20s, I lived with my mom and her new husband in Winnett, Oklahoma, a little sleepy town with nothing but a convenience store 10 miles from the town. I lived with them because I had a hard pregnancy, so I couldn't take care of my son alone. One night my mom and her husband Charles were making dinner, getting ready for the next day's venture to the cemetery to visit family buried there. They told me a story I would never forget. They told me of Box Road. As it goes, a man shot his wife and son in the face with a double-barrel shotgun, then ran to a tree overlooking the road and hung himself. It took getting a cherry picker to cut him down. The location has been haunted ever since and there are other stories of white dogs and black dogs that roam that stretch of road. This is where my story comes in. When I was about 8 months pregnant, I was driving down that road at night, and I needed air, so I had the windows rolled down. I don't know what time it was, but it was pitch black. I was driving when something black caught my eye so I looked And I saw a man standing just outside my window, not moving, just standing there. Mind you, I was going about 40 miles per hour down this little one lane road, but he kept up, not moving, just watching me. So I sped up, hoping to wish it away. As I turned my eyes from him, I saw a big black dog running toward the car at full speed. As it got closer, could make out red eyes and that it was just as big as a Buick, I slammed on the brakes just in time for it to vanish in a puff of smoke. I sat there crying, wishing I had a phone to call my mom when something told me to look up. I looked at the old willow covering the road and I saw the same man that was at my window, now hanging, staring at me with cold eyes. It took only a second for me to comprehend flight or die. I mean, I didn't need to go into labor out in the middle of nowhere, so I stomped on the gas and flew all the way back to my mother's where I told her everything. She told me it was a bad omen, so for the rest of my pregnancy, I was not to leave that house. After my baby girl was born, healthy and happy, I never saw that dog or that man again. Everyone has moments when they feel as though they recognize a place they've never been before, and they don't think much of it, but sometimes it can be downright spooky. I worked for several years as a real estate agent in West Virginia before throwing in the towel to enter phases two and three of my life, professional organizer and writer. At any rate, while working as a realtor, I had the opportunity to tour many homes of all shapes and sizes. From the most expensive to the modest, I thought I'd seen it all. I had no idea how true that would turn out to be. One day, I received the call all realtors covet A couple were looking for a home to buy and they needed to enlist the help of an agent. Look no further, I told them, I'm your girl. With that, I took down all of their information and made arrangements to meet with them in person and get the specifics of exactly what type of home they were interested in. Once I had found several homes that I felt would suit their needs, I contacted my clients and set up appointments for them to tour the homes. The first couple of showings were uneventful. We walked through the houses and everything was by the book. It was at the third house that things started to take a turn for the bazaar. My clients and I traveled in separate vehicles so that I could arrive a little ahead of them. I would enter the house and turn on the lights and do a quick walkthrough before they showed up. I had never seen this house before, never been inside of it until that day didn't really even have any recollections of having driven past it. As soon as I opened the front door with the pass key, I knew that house like the back of my hand. The strangest feeling sank into the pit of my stomach as I started flipping on the light switches and walking through the rooms. I knew exactly where everything was. As I continued through the house, I knew where every door led. I knew what the layouts of the rooms would be before I entered them. I could have walked through it blindfolded. It was as though I had lived in that house for years. I knew what would be around every corner. I even knew what kind of light fixtures and windows the place had. My head was spinning by the time my clients showed up to see the house. I probably looked like I had seen a ghost because they asked me if I felt all right. I just nodded and went about the routine of showing them the layout and going over the detail sheet with them. My mind was in such a haze that I don't really recall everything that went on that day. I do know that they didn't buy the house. I have experienced deja vu before, usually just a passing sense that I am reliving an event exactly the way it happened in the past even though it had never really happened to me before. This, however, was a whole different ball of wax. I don't know how, but I knew that house even though I had never in my life been inside of it before that day. One thing was for sure, I never felt the need to enter it ever again, and I removed it from my database of houses I would show my clients. In the middle 1990s, when I began writing about ghosts and hauntings across the Midwest, there was one house that I was frequently referred to by people in Ohio, Franklin Castle. Officially known as the Tiedemann Mansion, the unusual structure had long been called the most haunted house in the state. During its long and rather odd history, the ghosts became an integral part of its lore. For years, tales would be told of doors that exploded off their hinges, lights that spun around on their own, electrical circuits that behaved erratically, the inexplicable sounds of a baby crying, and even a woman in black who had been spotted staring forlornly from a small window in the front tower room. According to local tales, there have always been ghosts in the house, and this should come as no surprise considering the dark deeds, murders, and diabolical events that have been linked to this place. But how many of those stories are true, and how many are merely the stuff of legend? At the edge of Franklin Boulevard in Cleveland, you'll find the castle, a place where it is hard to separate fact from fiction. It's an eerie and forbidding stone structure that has long been considered a spooky place by history buffs, architects, and the general public alike. Rising high above the street, its stone tower looms over the property. The exterior is adorned with menacing gargoyles and for decades its windows were dark and filled with shadows. There were originally over thirty rooms in the house and intricate carvings filled the interior. The entire third floor a grand ballroom and the top floor offered sweeping views of the city and Lake Erie. And of course, there were the rumors. Secret passageways, it was said, honeycombed the house and sliding panels were used to hide the entrances to these hidden corridors. It was claimed that a young girl was once murdered in one of these hallways by her uncle because he believed her to be insane. In the front tower, a gruesome axe murder had once taken place, and it was in that tower that one of the former owners found a secret cabinet that contained human bones. Cleveland's deputy coroner, Dr. Lester Adelson, examined the bones in January 1975 and stated that they were very old and definitely human. Many believed that the forgotten bones had been left there by the house's original owner, a successful banker with a penchant for evil. Hans Tiedemann was a German immigrant to Cleveland who started out as a barrel maker and a wholesale grocer. He later turned to banking and founded the Euclid Avenue Savings and Trust, which made him very successful and very wealthy. He decided that he wanted a grand home that befit his newly acquired social status and hired the famed Cleveland architectural firm of Cuttle & Richardson to build it for him. When the house was designed in the late 19th century, Franklin Boulevard was one of the most upscale residential areas in Cleveland, perhaps second only to Euclid Avenue's so-called Millionaire's Row. The house was built over the period of 1881 to 1883, and it was meant to not only provide an upscale residence for his family, but also to provide a temporary place for friends, family, and others emigrating from Germany to stay when they first arrived in Cleveland. The house replaced an earlier house on the property, which was torn down during the construction of the castle. Hans moved into the house with his wife Louise, his mother Wybecka, their children, August, Emma, and Dora, and several servants. More children were born, but the stories say that life in the castle was never happy. By 1891, it had turned tragic. In January 1891, Tiedemann's mother and his daughter Emma died within weeks of one another. Although Wybecka's death was from natural causes, Emma died from diabetes. In those days, death from the disease came as a horrible, lingering starvation for which there was no cure. Over the next three years, the Tiedemann family would bury three more children, one of them just 11 days old. It truly seemed as though the family was cursed. To take his wife's mind off the tragedies, Tiedemann began extensive renovations on the house. It was during this expansion that the ballroom was added to the third floor, as well as the turrets and gargoyles on the exterior, giving the house a more castle-like appearance. Gas lighting was also installed throughout the house, and the legends say so were the secret passages, concealed rooms, and hidden doors. Unfortunately though, the hidden passageways and secret chambers in the house have vanished with time, if they existed at all no trace of them can be found today other than a small stairway that was used by the servants to get from the kitchen to the front door, which were commonly found in large homes of the era. Of course, the absence of such mysterious passages tends to cast doubt on some of the more heinous stories of the house. That Hans Tiedemann used the tunnels for his sexual indiscretions and even to commit murder, In one tunnel, leading away from the ballroom, Tiedemann was supposed to have murdered his niece by hanging her from a rafter. She was insane, it has been said, and he did it to put her out of her misery. He's also supposed to have murdered a young servant girl on her wedding day because she spurned his advances. Another version of this story claims the murdered woman was actually Tiedemann's mistress, killed because she wanted to marry another man. Some say she is the woman in black who haunts the tower room. But if there are no secret passages in the house, do the stories of the murders committed in them, stories that seem to form the foundation for the ghost stories in the house, have any truth to them at all? Even without them, however, there was still plenty of death and tragedy linked to the house. On March 24, 1895, Louise Tiedemann died at the age of 57 from liver failure. Hans remarried a short time later, leading many to speculate about the circumstances of Louise's death. Soon after, Tiedemann sold the castle to a local brewing family named Mulhauser and moved to a grander home on Lake Road. His second marriage did not last long. He divorced her after only a year, leaving her with nothing. By 1908, Tiedemann's entire family, including his son August and his grandsons, had passed away. There was no one left to inherit his fortune or to comfort him in his old age. Tiedemann died later that same year, suffering a massive stroke while walking in the park one day. Had the curse been lifted from the house? Or was more tragedy coming? In 1913, the Mulhauser family sold the castle to the local German Socialist Party, who officially used the house for meetings and parties. Rumors quickly spread, though, that the Socialists were actually using the place as a headquarters for spy efforts during World War I. Years later, a German shortwave radio was allegedly found hidden in the rafters. The infamous Secret Passages were claimed to be the scene of a brutal murder during the Germans' social occupation of the house. The house was mainly unoccupied during this time, but it's possible that they may have rented out at least portions of it. During an interview in the 1970s, a Cleveland nurse recalled that she had cared for an ailing attorney in the castle in the 1930s. She remembered being often terrified at night by the sound of a small child crying. More than 40 years later, she told a reporter that she would never set foot in that house again. In January 1968, the German Socialist Group sold the house to James Romano. Romano, his wife and their six children, soon moved into the mansion, a place that Mrs. Romano had always been fascinated with. They planned to open a restaurant in the house, but soon changed their minds. On the very day that the family moved in, she sent her children upstairs to play. A little while later, they came back downstairs and asked if they could have a cookie for their new friend, a little girl who was upstairs crying. Mrs. Romano followed the children back upstairs but found no little girl. Mrs. Romano also reported hearing organ music coming from different parts of the house. Footsteps in the hallways and on the stairs disembodied voices and the sounds of people coming from the former ballroom. The Romanos consulted a Catholic priest who declined to do an exorcism, but told them that he sensed a bad presence in the house. He advised them to leave. Instead, they turned to the now-defunct Northeast Ohio Physical Research Group, who decided to investigate the castle. If the stories are to be believed, one of the ghost hunters actually ran screaming from the house in the middle of the investigation. After enduring years of ghostly activity, the Romanos had reached their limit by 1974 and sold the house to Sam Muscatello, who was eager to cash in on the castle's eerie reputation. He began offering guided tours of the house and making notes about alleged encounters by visitors with the woman in black, strange sounds, vanishing objects and cold spots in the castle. He also used the media to generate publicity and once, during a live segment on Cleveland Radio, host John Webster had a tape recorder pulled off his shoulder and thrown down a staircase. Webster later recalled, "...I just stood there, holding the microphone as I watched the tape recorder go flying down to the bottom of the stairs, where it broke into pieces." Another time, during a television piece, crew member Ted Osepek witnessed a hanging ceiling light that suddenly began turning in circular motions. Someone suggested that perhaps traffic vibrations on the street outside had caused the movement of the light. Osepek didn't think so. I just don't know, he said, but there's something in that house. Muscatello began searching for the alleged secret passages in the house and that was when he found a pile of human bones behind a panel in the tower. Although few deny that real human bones were removed from the castle, whom they belonged to and how they ended up there has been debated. Some took the bones as proof that Hans Tiedemann was the murderer that legend claimed him to be, but others, however, believe that Muscatello stashed the bones there as quote-unquote evidence behind the haunting at Franklin Castle. Unable to make the castle into the tourist attraction that he hoped it would be, Muscatello eventually decided to sell the place. It was purchased by a doctor, who later sold the house for the same price he paid for it, to Cleveland's police chief, Richard Hongisto. The chief and his wife declared that the mansion would be the perfect place to live, but then, less than a year later, they abruptly sold the house to George Merceda, who knew nothing of the mansion's reputation at the time. He bought the castle because of its Gothic architecture, but soon learned that it was alleged to be haunted. Following in the footsteps of Sam Mustatello, he started offering tours of the place. Mercetta lived alone in the house, but had many visitors. During his tours, he asked his visitors to record any of their strange experiences in a guest book before they left. Some claimed to see a woman in white, others a woman in black. Some told of hearing babies crying or seeing things move about. One woman even claimed that she felt like she was being choked in the tower room. Mercetta admitted that he couldn't explain all of his experiences in the house, but he maintained that it was not haunted. If it was, he told a reporter, he would be too scared to live there. There has to be a logical explanation for everything," he told an interviewer. In 1984, the house was sold again. It was purchased by Michael Davinco, who almost immediately began making major renovations to the house. Davinco, whose stage name was Mickey Dean and who was the last husband of singer and actress Judy Garland, spent close to $1 million restoring the house over the next decade. He claimed to have no problems with the resident ghosts, but surmised that it may have been because he was taking care of the old place again. He successfully tracked down the original blueprints to the house, some of the Tiedemann furniture, and even the original key to the front door, which still worked. Despite all this, Davinko still decided to move out and put the house up for sale in 1994 the castle was again sold in 1999 but was torched by an arsonist soon after, causing substantial damage to the place. The new owner spent a large sum of money in repairs but was never able to complete the restoration of the house. During the time that he worked on the house, the owner stated that he was unsure if it was haunted or whether he believed in ghosts at all. However, he did say that many of his friends and family had odd experiences in the castle. He added that it was not a scary place, but it was a little creepy, especially in the middle of the night. He said, I've heard strange sounds and hoped to see something or hear something that would prove to me that ghosts exist, but so far it hasn't happened. So far it's been no spookier than sleeping alone in any old house that creaks in the wind or has rattling pipes. In 2003, the house was sold once more, and the new owner, a local land developer, announced hopes of renovating the mansion and turning it into the Franklin Castle Club, with a restricted membership. But three years later, it was discovered that there was no truth to the plan. No repairs had been made, and photographs that had been publicized were either close-ups of individual pieces of architecture or were older pictures from other sources. No work had been done, no memberships sold, and there were even claims that the house had been used as a location for filming pornography. The owners were no longer permitted to allow anyone on the property. Five more years passed, and in July 2011, it was announced that the castle had been rezoned to allow it to become a three-family dwelling and a sale was pending. It was purchased later that year by a European tapestry artist named Chiara Donna del Rose. A permit was granted for residential exterior alterations in 2012, and local news sources reported that it was to be converted into a multiple-unit property. Renovations have been made, but it remains a work in progress and closed to the public. Is Franklin Castle truly as haunted as the stories say? or are the legends of the house simply tall tales that were overblown by previous owners to get paying tourists in the door? At this point, no one can say for sure. As more of the incorrect history of the house has been debunked, the source of the ghost stories becomes harder to find. But if we dismiss the stories of Hans Tiedemann as a brutal killer and the tales of secret passages and mysterious murders, Does that mean the castle is not haunted at all? No, I don't believe that it does. No matter what, the castle is a place that is marked by both tragedy and death, and the events of the past may have certainly left an impression behind. As with other legendary spots, it may turn out that Franklin Castle is just as haunted as we have already heard that it is just not for the reasons that myth and legends about the place like to claim. My girlfriend was going to night school and I was drinking beer and watching TV one night when Patty, a roommate, knocked on my door and wanted to know if my girlfriend was around. I told her that she would not be home until midnight and she complained about the spookiness of the house and wanted me to sit in her room with her and watch TV there while she did her study work as her boyfriend was out of town. So, I'm sitting there watching TV and drinking beer while she studied and we heard someone enter the front door. This was about 9pm and she asked, is that Kathy? I was sure that she wasn't due home for hours, and Patty told me that her boyfriend was out of town for a week, so we both got up and looked down the stairs where we saw the shadowy figure of a man walk from the vestibule into the kitchen. We looked at each other and, although scared, decided to investigate. The house had more than one ghost, the worst being a crying baby, but this was a first. We went down to the kitchen together, and the door to the basement was open, and we never left that open. This old Victorian house had a basement you would not want to go down in daylight, let alone at night. Patty was a farm girl and said, you've got a shotgun, don't you? Of course, I said, and we went back up and armed ourselves. She walked in front of me with a 20-gauge pump, and I was behind her with a pistol. We went down the stairs and saw that someone, or something, had turned the light on, just a bulb hanging from a socket you had to go down and pull a string. As we reached the last step, Patty, with the shotgun in hand, asked if I wanted to keep going. I said, no way, and we walked backwards up the stairs, closed the door, and none of us ever went down there again that I can recall. When I was a child, my parents lived in Ontario, Canada. I had just gone to bed one night and was watching TV with my cat. My cat suddenly got scared and freaked out. I looked around the room and all of a sudden something grabbed my ankles and pulled me down the bed. I remember being pulled very angrily down to the bottom of the bed, but I couldn't see anything. Then it was like something was sitting on the bottom of the bed next to me. I could see the depression in the mattress. I got up, left the room, and would never sleep in that bedroom again. Some years ago, my family and I moved to a house in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The previous owner had died suddenly and his family wanted to sell everything, house, contents, everything. We moved into a house that was decorated in a very 1950s style. My room had an armchair, an old bed, an old stereo, and a pile of dusty old books. A few days later, bored, I went to my room and started to read one of the old books. It was about the paranormal. I soon discovered that all of the books were about the paranormal, and inside one of them there was a newspaper cutting from the turn of the century. I discovered that the house we had bought had once belonged to a priest who had, by all accounts, gone mad due to spending too much time on his own. I thought nothing of it. My father had told me that the president of a local bank had just owned the house, so this man must have owned it many, many years ago. Another week went by and I didn't think about it, but one Sunday night, I was trying to sleep and all I could think about was an old man scared and hiding in my room. A strange, scary creature with disconnected arms and legs was tormenting him. I was pretty creeped out, so I turned my light on and decided to do some reading. Of course, the only books in the room were the paranormal ones left over from the house's previous owner. I opened one of the books and saw a drawing. It was one of the creatures I saw. Apparently, it was a demon of some kind and was well known. I was a young kid. I knew nothing about the paranormal and I hadn't seen that image before. Yet it still makes me wonder if I saw the past. Did that priest come into contact with that demon I saw in my subconscious state? Many, many years ago, I went on a school trip to Southwest England. One evening during the day, there were some girls in the hotel of a similar age who would come for the weekly disco there. I was immediately attracted to one of them and, over the course of the evening, did everything I could to hook up with her. I had some success and, at some time after midnight, I walked her home holding hands. As we walked out of town, down a dark country lane, she began to become afraid and insisted that I leave her to walk the remaining half a mile or so on her own. She told me a rather strange story as we walked. She told me that her parents were witches and of the darker variety. She told me how she was forced to take part in rituals and was extremely scared. She told me that even now I was in danger just by her being with me. I laughed at her creepy tale but stopped short when I saw the tears in her eyes. "'Go quickly,' she urged me, "'before you have their attention.' I have to admit that a touch of ice ran down my spine, and after a quick hug, I left. I arrived back at the hotel deeply perturbed by her story, but as you do, I laughed it off and went to bed. At first, I was fine. However, as I lay on the point of sleep, a strange feeling came over me, as if I were being observed. Of course, I put this down to my imagination. I finally did fall asleep, but had very strange dreams and awoke in the later hours of the morning covered in sweat. It was very dark. In the corner of the room, I could swear there were two bright red eyes. I shut mine tight and willed it to go away, but when I opened my eyes again, there they were. Shaking, I reached for the bedside light. However, it did not work. There I was in sheer darkness with a pair of red eyes staring at me from the corner of the room and a growing air of malevolence in my small room. I was terrified. Who wouldn't be? I began to pray silently. I invoked the forces of good to defend and protect me and more besides. The feeling of gloom and despair deepened. The eyes grew in intensity. I prayed more feverishly, shivering in what was now a very cold room. Suddenly, the most amazing thing occurred. I saw a glow appear. Slowly it took on shape and solidity. What I saw defied any logic. It became a soldier in a bright blue uniform. It looked at me and the love emanating from his eyes was sufficient to calm me. It even smiled at me. In one movement, it raised its arm in a gesture that said, begone, and that was it. The gloom lifted. The atmosphere turned into one of happiness. A fragrance passed through the room of roses and the first light of dawn peeped through the curtains. The eyes were gone. And so was the soldier. When we first moved into our house in Houston, Texas, we had a few strange experiences. The house wasn't old, perhaps ten years old by the time we moved in, so we really couldn't explain the occurrences. The first thing we noticed was what appeared to be a dog walking by just outside the den windows in the backyard. It was a big dog and moving slowly. The first few times we just assumed it belonged to a neighbor, but once we got to know them we learned no one locally had a big dog. Occasionally I would run out across the kitchen and out the back door, but there was never any dog to be found. After a while, we just got used to the ghostly dog in the yard. After all, he didn't bark or bite. The next thing was crying. We would hear crying coming from an upstairs room, but whenever we went up the stairs we found no one and no reason for the sound. Eventually, the crying sounds stopped. Who knows who the dog belonged to or why it would pass by the back window so often? As for the crying, we did find the previous owners had lost a small child. About 20 years ago, we moved into a very old house. When one of the walls was removed, they found a room. Inside the room, two of the workmen discovered an old table. It looked extremely old, and my parents decided to keep it. At the time, we all thought it was a beautiful table, and it lived in our dining room. We had never experienced any kind of paranormal activity, but we began to notice that some of our family photos taken at the table had orbs in them. Finally, we realized that the only photos that had orbs in them were photos that included the table. Nothing more sinister than that really happened. We still have the table, and strange things happen when the focus is on the table. For example, my mother was showing the table to her friend, and a vase that had been sitting on a shelf fell to the floor. I've seen plates switch sides of the table. And my father swears the table has moved, just inches, but he swears it has moved. My question is this – can an object be possessed? Do you have a dark tale to tell? Backdoor Fiction – you can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com – and I might use it in a future episode. You can find links to all of the stories in this episode in the show notes. This episode of Weird Darkness was brought to you by The Nocturnal Reader's Box, now an official sponsor of Weird Darkness. If you're a horror fan, you'll love it. As a subscriber to The Nocturnal Reader's Box, every month you'll get at least two horror books – one new release and one previously released title. You'll always get a bookmark and a custom art print that is only available in the Nocturnal Reader's Box. These are not shiny, glittery quotes. They are actual artworks commissioned per the theme each month. They always have seven or more items in the box every month, too – often more. And if you subscribe now, you'll get the May Nocturnal Reader's Box, themed, Who Made This Bloody effing Mess? Featuring items inspired by Joe Lansdale, Robert McCammon, Anne Rice. Richard Layman and a very special wearable that you don't want to miss. Subscribe today at thenocturnalreadersbox.com. And there's a special deal just for you, my weirdo family. You can get 15% off your first subscription up to six months by using the promo code WEIRD15. All one word, no spaces. WEIRD15. That's WEIRD15. Sign up now at thenocturnalreadersbox.com. That's thenocturnalreadersbox.com or click the link in the show notes. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar – thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.